Today's reading is Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 21, through chapter 13, verse 7. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Thanks, Steve. Um, if uh, I just want to make an announcement because I don't know if everybody has heard. Um, our dear brother, um, Ron LaFoon, has uh, gone to be with the Lord. Uh, he passed away uh, Friday morning around 11 or so. And uh, so... Um, we just wanted to let you know about that uh, before I started praying about it, so it's not a surprise if you haven't heard yet. So uh, let's, uh, let's begin with a word of prayer. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Lord, as we mourn the passing of uh, Ron, um, Father, it is, it is an affliction. It is um, a, uh, a burden to miss our brother so. And Lord, we're grateful that we know, we have great confidence that he has passed into uh, heaven to gather around the throne of grace and to sing your praise. And that like us, he is now anticipating the resurrection and uh, the final state when we are all reunited together. And uh, Lord, in the meantime, we confess that we'll miss him. Uh, he has been a blessing to us individually. He's been a blessing to our church. And uh, so Lord, I, I pray for all of us as we, um, as we mourn his passing. And Lord, I wanna pray especially for Rachel, uh, who is missing her husband, who uh, he has been a good man to her for so many years, and she will miss him dearly. Father, for Tim and Michelle, as they miss uh, Ron's uh, fatherly figure in their lives, his, his role as, as father and father-in-law, and uh, for all the LaFoon family, uh, Father, would you give them the comfort with which uh, you comfort us? And uh, would we, I pray, be able to um, minister to the needs of the family as you make them clear to us out of love and concern and uh, genuine heartfelt gratitude for uh, our friendship with the LaFoon family. So have mercy on them and have mercy on us, we pray. Lord, as we turn now to your word, 
Would you open our hearts and minds to understand? Lord, would you open my mouth to speak clearly and to be articulate in explaining what your word says to us this morning? And Father, I pray that you would impress it upon our hearts, that you would use the, the preaching of your word as a way to sanctify us, as a way to make us more holy. Lord, as a way to conform us to the image of your son. And we ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen. So um, I had Steve start with the end of chapter 12, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I think that that actually does belong to the previous section because uh, verse 17 says, pay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. So it's kind of like Paul is repeating that thought. But um, the reason I had us start there is because I think that thought is going to continue on. I don't think Paul's done explaining that, that thought. As a matter of fact, if you remember chapter 12, we said was primarily about our sanctification. Um, up through chapter 11, we've heard about how we're saved, how we're justified by grace. And now in chapter 12, Paul transitions to, well, then how do we live as justified people? And what we said last week is that sanctification, that that growing in holiness, that growing conformity to, to uh, Jesus' image is God's work. It is what he does in and through us. And one of the ways that he accomplishes that, one of the ways that he makes us more like his son is through the scriptures, which contain commands telling us what to do. Uh, so last week we saw that um, it started with this kind of banner statement, let love be genuine. And I said at the time, it was just the words genuine love. And, and so what Paul is doing in the rest of 12 there is he's going through and explaining what that looks like. Um, he's doing it in a series of commands, but he's showing us what does genuine love actually look like. And so some people, when they get to chapter 13, they think this is an interruption in his thought. They think that um, for some reason he's jumped track or, or something along those lines. But um, the reason they say that is because suddenly he starts talking about government. And then after that, um, in verse um, 11, he goes back to uh, talking about how we should live. Salvation is near, and, and so he, he uses encouragement to us. Um, oh, no one anything except for love, for fulfilling the law, that kind of stuff. So some people feel like, like the section that we're about to look at is an interruption in Paul's thought. My opinion is it's not an interruption. It is the next logical step. Um, the first part in, in chapter 12, what he was talking about was how do we live together as redeemed people, as justified people? Um, how do we care for each other? How do we live with each other? And then he ends that, brings it to this crescendo, this statement, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And, and that is not just a, a, a microcosm of what it's like in the church. He's talking about Christian, this is how you live in the entire world. And so when, he, when he's thinking about, well, how do we live in the world? How do we overcome evil? What's the next thing he thinks of as the greatest evil in the world at his point? The Roman government, the, the, the governing authorities. So what he says is, this is the big opposition that we're going to face. And what I want you to do, Christian, is I don't want you to misunderstand the relationship between you and even that evil government. Um, so he begins to explain. He says, let every person be subject to governing authorities. Um, that's, that's how the justified person lives. Um, and, and you've got to remember that the Roman government, the Roman civilization was brutal. It was absolutely brutal. Um, it was as immoral as you could imagine. Uh, the Roman mindset 
was that you share your body liberally uh, with whomever, whenever, uh, male or female, however often, however many people, that kind of stuff. But you're really tight with your money. And so um, when you see when when Lisa and I went to the um, Reagan Library, they had a, a display of uh, Pompeii. They had brought artifacts from Pompeii and uh, had them on display. And there was this one little kind of room in the back that had the sexual ethic represented there. And it was fairly embarrassing. Um, and this stuff was just on public display in Pompeii. This was the normal sexual ethic in the Roman Empire was, hey, it's, you know, whatever feels good, do it, basically. When uh, Caesar Augustus died, they, they claimed that he didn't merely die, he ascended into heaven because he was a son of God. And so what sprung up was worship, not only of Caesar Augustus, but the Caesars before him. So these brutal dictators, these, these really wicked men were worshiped as gods and seen as this, this ideal of what they should be worshiping. Um, one of the things the scripture warns us is you become like what you worship. Um, those who worship idols become like them is, is a refrain in the Old Testament a number of times. So when the leaders are this corrupt, when the leaders are this brutal and vicious and mean, it reflects downward throughout society. And so Roman Empire, the Roman Empire was a brutal place to live. Um, children, for example, were routinely left out to die of exposure, particularly females, because they were less uh, desirable. Um, so they were often just, they'd have a child, I don't want a girl, and they just set them outside and leave them and let the elements and the animals take care of it. Um, and then if they didn't do that, they may just turn around and sell the child into slavery. And slavery was a huge thing in the Roman Empire. It was, it was pretty, pretty um, brutal. It was not uh, just an economic reality. There was an a, a degree of brutality in that too. Uh, estimates on uh, the number of Roman slaves at any given time vary quite a bit. Um, they range from about 20 to 40% of the population in the first century. Um, and they go upwards from there. There was actually a movement uh, to, um, uh, in Rome to have the slaves wear uniforms so that they would be easily identified. And that was shot down because people said, if they do that, they'll see how many of them there are and they'll rise up against us. Mm -hmm. So there were that many slaves in Rome at that time. And the Roman law said that a slave has no persona. They are not a person. He has no personality. A slave does not own his own body. He has no ancestors, no name, no last name, no goods of his own. And so the testimony of a slave could not be accepted in a court of law unless the slave was tortured. And the reason for that was they thought that the slave would have a, a good knowledge of his master's doings and would lie to protect him. So the only way you could trust him is if you tortured them. And, and slaves could be executed and, and cut off with impunity. There's no, no rules for that. So this is the kind of environment that they lived in. There was no idea of human rights or human dignity. The powerful did what they did because they wanted to. The clever manipulated their way through the world. The wealthy paid others to eliminate enemies and bribe their way to power. And this was normal. This is just the way it was. So when you look at the Roman Empire, Paul looks at the world around him and, and he's thinking, don't overcome or don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good. And 
the world outside his window was a perfect example of what it would look like to be overcome by evil. There was so much out there. So how did the church eventually overcome the evils of Roman society? What did the church do? Well, they didn't vote people, they didn't vote in the right people. You didn't have a vote for the emperor and most people couldn't vote. Uh, you had to be male, their females couldn't vote and you had to be a Roman citizen to vote and you had to be a, what was called a full Roman citizen. And so it, was, it wasn't everybody that did it. It was probably the wealthy and the, and the well-connected who could vote. So the church didn't really have a voice in this. They didn't have a way to vote their man in. Um, they didn't take up arm, arms against a corrupt Roman government. They would have been quickly and, and efficiently wiped out. One of the things Rome was very good at was mustering an army and destroying their enemies. And so since they didn't have this concept of human rights or human dignity, um, if there was trouble in an area, it was up to the governor. He may arrest one or two people. He may send in a whole squad and wipe every single person out. It didn't matter to them. It was whatever would work at the time. So that the, the church didn't take up arms against the Roman government. It wouldn't have worked. And they didn't hive off and become isolated Christian groups that had no interaction, interaction with the corrupt Roman society either. Where they could, where the church could, they submitted to Roman rule and lived as the church. They didn't overcome evil. They weren't overcome by that evil. They overcame evil by good. Um, where the, where the, the Romans were liberal with their body and stingy with their money, Christians held marriage and honor among all and kept the marriage bed undefiled, Hebrews 13.4. They offered their bodies as a living sacrifice, Romans 12.1. And they were extremely generous with their money. They sold whatever they had and held it in common and, and paid for each other's needs and, and sent money from Corinth to, uh, to Jerusalem because there was a famine, because there was problems, because the church was in need. It was the exact opposite, countercultural to what the Romans would expect. The Romans worshipped emperors and other gods, but the Christians only worshipped Jesus. And because the Christians would only worship Jesus and denied all the Roman gods, they were often called atheists. You don't believe in God at all because you, you're worshiping this, this guy. And the idea of worshiping Jesus in that time was just utter foolishness. It made no kind of sense. They're worshiping Caesar Augustus because he was this conquering king, this great hero, and he died a noble and a, and a, a glorious death. And these Christians are worshiping some backwards preacher who died on a cross. He died a criminal's death. What kind of insanity is that? The Christians believed that people were made in God's image, and so they gathered those abandoned children. They went and picked them up. They cared for the sick and the dying. They gave food and care to those suffering during plagues. There was a, pl a plague in Rome that um, historians believe might have been a first really big smallpox outbreak, and whereas the rich were heading to their summer villas far away from Rome, even one of the lead doctors left, Christians went into the city and people expected them to die, but they didn't. They seemed to survive at a much higher rate. And because they did just the simple things of providing food and water and basic care to the people who were suffering in Rome, many of them survived. That was utter nonsense to the, the Romans. Why would you risk your life for these things? Wouldn't even consider them people. In Paul's message to Philemon, Philemon is the owner of a runaway slave named Onesimus. And what Paul did was he sent Onesimus back to his master, back to Philemon. 
But when he did, he said, I'm sending him back not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ. And then he says, I could command you as an apostle, I could command you to do the right thing. But Philemon, I know you'll do the right thing. Onesimus has been very dear to me. I care for him greatly. So here, take him back. And if he owes you anything, charge it to me. I'll pay for it. What Paul did in that simple act of sending Onesimus back to Philemon as a brother in Christ was not campaigning to change the laws of Rome that had to do with slavery. It was much more subtle. It was much more uh, underhanded because what it did is it undermined the basic idea, the concept of slavery in the Roman mindset. It said, this person is not less human. This person is not a non-person. This is a person. This is somebody for whom Christ died. And so Philemon, I want you to welcome him back, bring him in. And so right there, the, the issue of slavery begins to crumble in his hands. So what Paul did was he was undermining these, these uh, ideas of what it would look like to be living in a, an evil empire, in an evil society. The church did all of this while submitting to Rome to the greatest degree that they possibly could. Where they couldn't was when they were told not to worship Jesus, when they were told to make sacrifices to the emperors, that kind of thing. They, they couldn't go there. But in all the other ways, what Paul tells them is be in submission to ruling authorities. And so why? Why should they be in submission to these evil authorities? Shouldn't they resist them? Shouldn't they oppose them? Isn't it right to, to stand against evil in the world? Well, Paul says it's because God himself institutes these authorities. These are instituted by God, established governing authorities. Even the evil ones, even the corrupt ones, these are all instituted by God. And that comes from Daniel chapter 2. Uh, Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belongs wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. And don't forget where Daniel was when he prayed this. He was in the royal court of Nebuchadnezzar. And he's looking at, the, at this king who had just hauled Israel away into exile and he says, God sets up kings, including Nebuchadnezzar, including this one. And, and so in Jeremiah, in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet says uh, in 27 verse 6, Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. In the book of Jeremiah, God calls Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. He calls him that three times. Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, imagine being in Daniel's shoes or in Jeremiah's shoes and looking at this man, Nebuchadnezzar. He was a tyrant. He ruled the world with an iron fist. He was, if you thought Rome was bad, Assyria and Babylon were much worse. And yet God would call this person, this Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5, he calls Assyria the rod of my anger. And he said, the staff in their hands is my fury. So God is saying that he used Assyria to carry away Israel, the northern 10 tribes, um, because they were a rod in his hand. And, and they, the staff that they carried was his fury. They were doing God's work. So God had set up these empires in order to accomplish his purposes. But as Daniel said, God raises up kings, but he also brings them down. 
he takes them down. So in Jeremiah, toward the end of the book, Jeremiah is written across a long period of time. So the early portions are during the exile or beginning of the exile or when, when the um, Babylonians are coming toward them. The, the end of the book is after the captivity. So Jeremiah 50, verse 17, God says, Israel is a hunted sheep driven away by lions. First, the king of Assyria devoured him. And now the last, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon has gnawed his bones. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, behold, I am bringing punishment on the king of Babylon and his land as I punished the king of Assyria. So God raised up Assyria to take Israel away. He raised up Babylon to take Jerusalem away. And then after they were done, he judged them. He brought judgment upon them. Um, in uh, Isaiah 10, a little bit further on, God says, shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifted it, or as a staff should lift him who is not wood? Therefore, the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness upon his stout warriors, and under his glory, a burning will be kindled like a burning of fire. He's, he's, he's looking at what they were doing, and he's bringing judgment on them. Why? Because when in chapter 10, verse 5, he said, Assyria is my rod and my staff, he says, he goes on in verse 7 to say, but he does not intend and his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy, in his heart to cut off nation, not a few. In other words, what God is saying is, I raised up this evil empire. I raised up this wicked ruler to accomplish my purposes. And then he went too far. He thought that he had done it. He thought that he was in charge. He thought that he had all the glory, that he was the powerhouse behind this. And so I'm going to cut him off. I'm going to bring judgment on him. So God is the one who raises up kingdoms, and he's the one who brings down kingdoms. But that's God's place to do that. That's not our place. That's why in uh, chapter 12, verse 19, Paul told us, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So when the church in, in Rome is looking at this, they don't feel the need to rise up arms and, and attack the, the nation. They don't feel the need to form a new political party and try to oust the, uh, the emperor. That's not how the church did it. The church overcame Rome, not by political or military opposition, but by doing good. They couldn't answer how these Christians could rush into plague-ridden cities and care for the poor and the needy. The church changed Rome, not by legislation, but by preaching the gospel and by doing good. The church survived Rome because Jesus built his church and no earthly power can stop it. So as Jesus builds his church, as he tells us how we should live, how we should be more like him, that kind of power is unstoppable. It is irresistible. It will accomplish God's purposes. And the church outlasted Rome because God raises up kings and kingdoms and he takes them down again. And so Rome rose, or, I mean, uh, Babylon rose and fell. Rome rose and fell. Um, Europe rose and is not fallen, but not really that big of a player anymore. America has risen and maybe we're falling. Maybe that's where we're at now. And so in the midst of that, we have to ask, how are we supposed to live? We're supposed to live in submission to the ruling authorities to the greatest degree possible, as far as we possibly can. Why? Because God is the one who set up these authorities. It is his plan. It is his purpose. And the, the most amazing thing about America is not our constitution and all those things. The most amazing thing is 
we vote for our leaders, and yet it is God who appoints them and God who puts them in place and God who takes them out. Um, leaders we like, leaders we don't like, leaders we respect, leaders we don't respect, leaders we agree with, leaders we don't agree with. It's God's doing, and he does it through the instrumentality of a vote. I think it's just even more subtle and amazing than, than the way that he had done it in other kingdoms. So opposing kings and kingdoms, God has established is opposing God's work. The, the king will judge you, and so will God. So that's what he says. He talks about being judged for doing wrong. Um, it's the king will do it tempor temporally. He will do it in time, but God will judge us as well. So verse three goes on, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear for the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So rulers are not a terror to good conduct. Think about that for a minute. Remember that Christians were thrown to lions in the Colosseum because they refused to offer incense to the, to the emperor as, as a form of worship. Um, Christians were dipped in tar and tied onto sticks and used as lighting in Nero's garden because he just hated them. So what does Paul mean that rulers are not a terror to, to good conduct? Um, generally speaking, rulers are not a terror to those who do what the rulers feel like they want done. Um, and when it runs counter to their purposes, then they, perse they, uh, they persecute them. So what is he talking about? Well, he, what he's talking about is if we are persecuted for good conduct, that's not a terror to us. We're not afraid of that. We, we would be um, persecuted because we are doing what God wanted us to do. We know we're doing what was right because it's in, according to God's will. So even the persecution that comes at us is not a terror. It, it's not going to scare us. And if we're rewarded for doing what God wants us to do, well, so much the better. Nothing to complain about there. What we're doing by submitting and recognizing that our good conduct, even if it brings wrath from the ruler, is not a cause of terror, is we're not being overcome by evil. We're not allowing evil to overcome us, to say, well, if, if I do what God wants, I'll be in trouble, so I better not do that. I better compromise here. That's being overcome by evil. That's not what we're doing. We are, we are recognizing that the king is not a terror to good conduct. He can't scare us. So we're not being overcome by evil. We are overcoming evil by good. And so as they, the, the uh, Christians are persecuted for praying, for worshiping, for being good stewards of what God has given them, that is a puzzle to the persecutors because it doesn't make sense. Why would you endure this? Just give up. So the government is supposed to be a servant for good, God's servant for good. This does not mean that, this, that the government is perfect and will always execute God's justice without missing it. Um, government often misses the mark, but it still accomplishes God's purpose. Um, that's why it is not a terror to us, because we just look at them and go, you know, they're a lot like us. They make mistakes too. Um, we miss the mark quite often. The discussion before church this morning, we were looking at a really difficult passage in 1 Peter, and there's some difference of opinion, and, and it's one of us is right, one of us is wrong, or maybe all of us are wrong, I don't know, but um, we can look at that, and, and 
work through that with, with the, the knowledge that, hey, we're going to make mistakes and it's not the end of us. It doesn't mean that we have lost anything just because we got one or two things wrong, provided that we live civilly with each other, that we can wrestle with these questions. And, and that's probably why God gave us these difficult texts is to, to get us to think like that and to challenge us and to wrestle through those things. So when the government misses the mark, we can look at them and go, well, I would probably mess it up in some way too. I would probably get this wrong as well. And so I don't have to be afraid of them. I know that they're supposed to be there to do good. And then what it says is, Paul says, he does not bear the sword in vain. Um, talking about the ruler, the, 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 the ruler has uh, been given the authority to use violence. The government has been given the authority to use violence. It's the threat of violence that keeps civil order. Um, the idea that if I go break into people's houses, the police are gonna show up and they're gonna have guns and they're not gonna ask me politely to stop. Uh, it is that threat of violence that the government has been given that keeps good, uh, that is intended to keep good order in, an, in a society, to keep a peaceful, um, uh, keep a nation peaceful. And according to 1 Timothy 2, the reason that we want a peaceful nation is so that the church can be busy about its business, um, not worrying about looking over our shoulders. So the government has given, been given this authority for violence. Christians are not. The church is not given the authority to wield that kind of power. Um, so consider the Roman church in the Middle Ages, executing heretics, uh, the... the um, the Spanish Inquisition, torturing people to get them to confess Jesus. That is not a legal authority. That's not a, a God-given authority that the church had to execute people and to do those kinds of things. So then is it okay for a Christian to be in the police or in the military? Is, is that an okay thing? Because those are instruments of that violence. Is that allowable that a, police, uh, that a Christian could be a cop or, or a soldier? And the answer to that, as you probably guess, as your 22-year veteran um, pastor is preaching, is going to be yes, um, because I did that. So I was in the military. So, all right, all right, uh, preacher boy, give me some uh, some biblical justification for this. Well, when soldiers came to John the Baptist and asked them what they should do, in Luke three chapter or chapter three verse fourteen, uh, the soldiers asked him, "What shall we do?" And he said to them, do not exhort money from anyone by threats or false accusation and be content with your wages. He did not say, what shall you do? Go find a new line of work, buddy. You can't be in the military. What he told them instead was be good soldiers. Don't, don't be crooked soldiers trying to wiggle money out of people. Uh, be good soldiers and, and do a good job at it. Acts chapter 10, when Peter preached to Cornelius, Cornelius was a centurion. He was a high ranking military officer. And he preached to him in his household. As he's preaching, the Holy Spirit falls on him. And the result was Peter baptized them. He didn't tell Cornelius, all right, dude, you got to go find another line of work. He, he was recognized as a good man, as a, as a good and honorable person. He was good to the Jews. And so when Peter saw his conversion, he just baptized him. And, and that was it. There was nothing that was said, you got to leave that line of business. So it is possible for a Christian to serve in the government and employ that threat of violence, provided it's done well and rightly. And there may be times when a Christian would have to look and say, I, I can't do that. I can't do what you're asking me to do because it's not just. 
um, and then deal with the consequences because you're, you're going against the authority that's over you. But it's possible to do that and to do it well. So those are just some examples of, of not using, not the church not having the sword, but the, the uh, government doing it. Um, so he's, Paul says in verse five, therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And I thought that was a, a fascinating thing to say, for the sake of conscience, not only to avoid wrath, in other words, don't get the, the government needlessly angry at you, but also for your conscience sake. So what does he mean by that? He says the authority that God has established um, is a servant of God, that, that ruling authority. It's avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So we have to submit to him because of God's wrath, not just because of the, the um, emperor's wrath, but because of God's wrath as well. Now, that's complicated because chapter 5, verse 9 says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? So if chapter 5 says not only you know, to avoid God's wrath, but also for conscience sake, we're justified. We have been justified by grace through faith, and therefore we have been saved from God's wrath. So what is he talking about when he says that we have to submit to avoid God's wrath and for the sake of conscience? Well, the wrath that he's talking about is God's wrath in a temporal sense. His, his idea that what he's doing is he's punishing us in a, in a momentary time for a specific act of disobedience. And that sounds like um, like the book of Hebrews, I think it's chapter 10 or chapter 12 says that God is like a father and he punishes us uh, lightly because he's disciplining us to help us to grow. And that would be what they're talking about God's wrath because the government, when it brings in that judgment, cannot execute God's eternal wrath, God's eternal judgment. That's not the government's role. As a matter of fact, when Jesus returns at the end of the age and he judges everybody, that will be the wrath that is for eternal, um, eternal judgment, eternal position with God. And God will do that. The, the government doesn't. So in verse 5, he says we have to be in subjection to the government to avoid God's wrath, God's discipline, his, his uh, correcting us. But the most important part is, but also for conscience sake. Uh, you don't want to suffer the immediate uh, consequences of disobedience. Um, and, and I like the way Calvin, John Calvin commented on this. I, I, um, I translated it in a little bit more modern English, but basically what he says is this. Calvin says, if the magistrate were disarmed and we could provoke and despise him without consequence, we still shouldn't do it any more than if uh, punishment were threatened over us. It's not up to the private individual to dis disregard the authority of the, someone the Lord has set in power over us. So even if that sword that the government has been given, even if God took that away, we still shouldn't be in disobedience to the government. Why? For conscience sake. For con it's, it's necessary to, for us to obey for conscience sake because we know that God has established this authority. And we should fear God more than we fear man. If we fear man and ignore conscience, we will winding up, wind up submitting when government is wrong. If we take the conscience part out of it, we will submit when the government is wrong. If we submit for conscience sake, we've had God's law written on our heart. We will obey without fear and we will obey with respect. It'll look something like Acts chapter 4 
when Peter and John are arrested and they're before the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin tells them, don't you preach in that name anymore. And here's Peter and John's response. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Do you hear the tone that he takes there? Peter looks at the leaders who have told them you can't talk about Jesus anymore. And instead of saying, well, forget you, I'm doing it anyway. They're very respectful. Whether it's right for us to listen to what God has told us to do or to listen to you, you make that call. You understand that for yourself. As for us, we have to. And so they don't, they aren't demanding their rights as Jews before the Jewish Sanhedrin. Instead, they're pitching the battle. They're pitching the, the, the debate exactly where it needs to be, which is between the authority of the Sanhedrin and the authority of God. And which one should we listen to? That's obeying for consciousness sake. And that will keep you on the right track. Because of conscience, because we're obeying conscience, we're not overcome by evil. Peter and John, it would have been evil for them to say, okay, well, we won't talk about Jesus anymore. They were apostles. Jesus had called them to be his, his uh, apostles. He had them walk with him in his ministry. He commissioned them to be witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the outermost parts of the world. It would be wrong for them to listen to the Sanhedrin and go, okay. But for conscience sake, they, they obeyed where they could, and then they disobeyed where they couldn't. They, didn't, they weren't overcome with evil. They overcame evil with good. It is good to obey the Lord. And so the section ends, verse 6, For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And the, the most important word in that whole section is the one that's repeated the most, owed. You, you give to Caesar what is Caesar's. When, when Jesus was asked, should they pay the temple tax? He said, give me a coin. Whose inscription is this? That's Caesar's. Great. Then you give to Caesar what he belongs to him, but you give to the Lord what belongs to him. So what he's saying is, is you give to the government what the government is due. And taxes are part of what the government demands from us. Um, I, I had a little bit of a discussion on Facebook with a friend who's more libertarian and, and um, regularly says taxation is theft. That's kind of a um, libertarian mantra. And I keep saying, no, it's not. It can be, but it's not. Um, taxation is something that's that's established in the Bible. And he said, well, you're only going by one verse. And I said, well, I just cited one verse. There's plenty of other verses that have to do with paying taxes. And uh, for Jesus to say, give to Caesar what is his, that's, that's another verse that says, pay your taxes. Look to the Old Testament. And, and God had set up these appointed times where you'd bring in the tithe, your first fruits, that kind of stuff. Those were taxes. That was That was goods that went to the priests because they weren't able to go out and work the fields and tend their flocks while they were working in the temple. It was a form of taxation. Taxation has got a long history of working and, and it's God's thing. So what you do for conscience sake is you pay your taxes. Um, don't pay more than you have to pay. What's, what's uh, you know, what's reasonable and what's correct. Um, get as many deductions as you can legally, uh, truthfully, but pay your taxes. And if they're too high, what is the option here? If they're too high, I don't have to pay them. No, pay your taxes. 
If they're going to be used for things I don't agree with, um, do I still have to pay my taxes? Uh, for example, if, um, and this is possible with, with the Biden administration, they're, they're pretty hard over on abortion, the Hyde Amendment could be rescinded. The Hyde Amendment says that public money will not be spent on abortion, to, to fund abortion. The, the Democrats who removed the word uh, rare from their statement on, um, on abortion, they said it should be safe, legal, and rare. Now it's just safe and legal. And they're barking up the tree to remove the Hyde Amendment. Let's say that happens. They, they delete the Hyde Amendment. They, they overturn it. And now our tax money goes to fund abortions. Does that mean you can stop paying taxes because it's being used for immoral things? Not really. Look at what Paul is saying here. He's talking about the Roman Empire. Imagine how they're using their taxes. They're using their taxes to fund armies that wipe people out for no good reason. They're using their money to fund building temples to false gods, to, to uh, emperors. So pay your taxes. That, that is a, a matter that is indifferent in God's sight. It's not the end of the world if you pay taxes, even to unright, uh, unrighteous, uh, immoral governments. And, and again, it is for the authorities. These authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. That's one of the things that they're given the power to do. They're given the sword, the threat of violence against you if you don't pay your taxes. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Revenue is, um, it's almost synonymous with taxes. It's not a separate kind of thing. Respect to whom respect is owed. This is where you see Peter and Paul, or Peter and, and John before the Sanhedrin being respectful. This is where you see um, uh, Paul when he's arrested and brought before the uh, Sanhedrin, brought before the, the ruling authority, he lips off to the, uh, the high priest and he is struck on the face. And he, he says, you whitewashed sepulcher. And he goes after the high priest and then apologizes. He said, I didn't, I didn't know he was the high priest, I'm sorry. That's respect to whom respect is owed. A high priest who was opposed to Jesus, who was willing to persecute the church, who would lie to get Paul arrested, who would scheme to get Paul killed on the way to Caesarea, he's worthy of respect. He's owed respect. Why, is, why would they be owed respect? Why would, uh, would uh, Paul, when he gets to Caesarea, speak to Felix and to Herod with, with great respect? Oh, Herod, I am so glad you get to hear my case. Why would he do that? Because God has established these authorities. This is who God has put there. You may not like it. I may not like it. But we have to treat them with respect. You're respecting the office because it is the office that God has established. And so respect to whom respect is owed. Respect is not, um, can't be demanded. You can't say you have to respect me, but the, uh, the position can say, this position is a position of great authority and you will respect it. Honor to whom honor is owed. So that is how the church lives in the world that is, the church is not overcome by evil. There's plenty of evil in the world. It's all over the place. It's not going away anytime really soon. Unless Jesus returns tomorrow, we're stuck in this world with evil in it. But we will not overcome evil by evil. We will overcome evil by good. So that section from the end of chapter 12, all of those ways we're supposed to live, how we're supposed to make love genuine, that's how we overcome an evil world. That's how we overcome this evil and broken society that we live in. How do we change America? How do we get America back? How do we make it great again? 
We don't do it through military operations. We don't do it through voting the right people in. We don't do it through any of those things. We do it by first and foremost being the church of Jesus Christ as he has commanded us to do. We do it by showing respect to the governing authorities, whether they're Democrat or Republican, whether favored or not, whether they're good or wrong. We do it by showing them respect, by paying taxes to them, by doing these things, by showing them honor, by submitting to them to the greatest degree possible. We overcome that evil by good. And the greatest thing, the thing I think that we, we really desperately need, I was praying about this this morning, and it really just weighed on my heart, is we need to pray for revival in America. That is, what, that is how we will change America. That's how we'll make America great. That's how we'll, we'll, we'll uh, bring back all these wonderful things that we think America used to be, is when we pray for revival. God has brought revival to this nation a number of times. He can do it again. And so how are we going to overcome evil? We're going to overcome evil with good. And the ultimate good is that more people hear the message of Jesus Christ, believe in him as their savior, and are converted. That they would join us in our quest to overcome evil with good. So please, folks, if I can ask you to pray for anything, please be praying that God would spark revival in our land. That he would start with us, with the church, with us individually, personally with his, his church in America, the evangelical church, the broader church in general, that the church would be revived and that revival would spill out into our society. That's, I think, the greatest way we overcome evil with good is by praying for those around us. So as we engage this world, as we're trying to live according to the way that Jesus said, this is our approach. It's not militancy. It's not isolation. It's not any of these other things that are so common, it's much more difficult. It is being you on a daily basis, walking on a day-to-day -day basis, being who you are, doing what you do, overcoming evil with good. And the good is only possible because you have been justified, because you have been sanctified, because God is at work inside you to will and to do according to his good purpose. That's how we overcome evil, is, is through the good that God is doing in us. Let's pray. Lord, I would be a hypocrite now if the next words out of my mouth are not, please grant us revival. Lord, please grant us revival. Would you send your spirit on your church in America? Start with us. Start with the household of God. Purify us. Purge us of the evil that we've drunk from. If we have hidden sins in our lives, Lord, would you cause us to confess them, to, to cast them away, to turn away? Lord, spark revival in your church. Holy Spirit, come upon your people here in the Antelope Valley, in Lancaster, in Trinity Community Church, and cause us to pray. Fill us with a spirit of prayer. Cause us to seek your face. And Lord, would you then spill that, that blessing, that revival out into our culture in general. And may we see many people come to know you. And Father, this has been a pattern that you've done in the past when there's economic upheaval, when there's disease, when there's war. Lord, you also at the same time bring along revival. Would you do that for us again as we're facing so many challenges? And Lord, we confess that we can't do it. We're not strong enough. We are your church. We are your body, but you're the head. And so would you accomplish these things in us? And Lord, I pray that you would cause in America and around the world, your church, to not be overcome by evil, to resist the temptation to fall in line with what the world wants to do, to resist the urge to become part of the next big thing. But Lord, would we be empowered and gifted to overcome evil with good? 
Grant us that. Make our hands do the good that you want us to do. We pray this in Christ's name for his glory. Amen.